Well, welcome to Lab Life with the Air Force Research Laboratory. Hi, I'm Michelle. And I'm Kenneth. Today we are sitting down with Kevin Schmidt, a research engineering psychologist here at AFRL. He's a mountain climbing smart scholar who measures the air in your head. In three, two, one. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks for doing this. And Kevin, I have to say that we're here today because we were having a conversation, you know, walking in a hallway one time and you're like, did you know that I climbed the highest peak in Africa? And then I <laughs> waved a AFRL flag at the top and I was like, no, that sounds like a really cool story. Tell me about it. So can you tell us about it? Sure. Yeah. Kilimanjaro was great. I've been a rock climber for a number of years. So AFRL headquartered in Dayton. We're really close to some really nice rock climbing destinations. But more recently, I've been taking my climbing to high altitudes. So doing high altitude mountain climbing, stuff like Kilimanjaro, and hopefully working up to doing more technical uh, climbs as well. I mean, I don't, we could, we could circle back to Everest later in the conversation. I'm not sure that's necessarily where I'm going, but that style of climbing is kind of what I'm doing. And so Kilimanjaro was the first pass and it's a great way to kind of like, you know, travel the world and also like kind of bring the laboratory work that we're doing out into the field. And so I followed that Kilimanjaro climb up with this climb in, in South America. And I know AFRL, you know, did some social media behind that. And, and that was my second kind of really big mountain of these seven summits, they call it the highest mountain on each continent. And so that's sort of what I've been, what I've been working on is tying, tying that climbing, that high, high altitude climbing in with research. Yeah, so you're a psychologist and you, you do research for the laboratory in our human performance area. So you know you're gonna climb the, the highest peak in South America, which is Mount right. Aconcagua, right? Yeah. And then how did you tie that into your day job and some of the stuff you do in your research and school? What, what's, that, what's that even space look like? What yeah, happened? I'm having to create it on my own. I mean, it doesn't exist, but that's what we do is we use our training, you know, our skill sets, my skill sets in psychology and neuroscience, and we find different ways that we can apply it to improve the human condition and improve the warfighter. So right now I'm in school and I'm building kind of this mountain laboratory where I can take the, the work that I'm doing in the lab, you know, looking at different parts of the brain and how it responds to low oxygen. And then we can take that out into the field and say, hey, in the real world, how is this working? And a really good place for that is these high altitude mountains because a lot of people are willingly subjecting themselves to these very hostile environments. And it's a really cool test bed where we can test our technology in a semi-safe environment. You know, you have rangers and medical checks there but also kind of, you also have 80 mile an hour winds and you have terrible blizzards and stuff like that. So it's a real gut check to make sure that the, the technology that you're working on in the lab is actually gonna work in the real world. You know, I think you get a lot of gasmo, gizmos and gadgets and you know, all these wires and then you, you take a step back and you realize, oh yeah, battery life, that's a pretty important thing. Or it gets so cold, your electronics aren't even working anymore. What are you gonna do? How are you gonna collect that data? Um, so it's a it's a really cool way to keep myself on track to to make sure that the the technologies that I'm developing are going to be meaningful to the real world. And our real world is the warfighter. It's it's right. the the soldier on the mountain, the the pilot at a high altitude in a in a plane. So you're studying right. oxygen deprivation's effect on the brain and 
the tools and research behind that. Um, so you're going out in the field, so you decide that you're going to climb this mountain. What did you do to prepare for that? And, and what kind of airfrail technology did you take with sure. you or testing or through your work at your PhD student right now at um, Northwestern, right? Yeah. I'll start off with kind of the, the training, which, you know, you have to be in good physical performance. You know, there's no excuse for not being in good enough shape on that mountain. I won't let myself and my team be uh, hindered by my lack of preparation, right? And so what that means is hours and hours in the gym, hours running, biking, swimming, uh, did a lot on the Stairmaster, you know, reading my research articles, because like you said, I'm in school, so I'm sitting there reading my research articles with like an 80 pound dumbbell in my in my hiking backpack for, for hours, you know, and, and that's what you gotta do. You gotta put in the time so that when it comes to the real world, you're, you're prepared. But oh, by the way, there's, there's no you know, controlling mother nature. So you can do all the preparation you want, but everything's still gonna go wrong. You're still you know, at the will of the mountain, whether or not they're gonna let you summit with, with good weather or not. But I, I made it uh, really important that I wasn't gonna let my physicality be a limiting factor for the climb, so doing some of that. Another cool um, technology that we were working on with that Aconcagua climb was kind of the, the so what. So, so I, I, I'm, I'm measuring oxygen in the brain. I'm developing these different cognitive tests, you know, on a tablet, you can play these computer games that can assess your cognitive functioning. Oh, your attention's down three points. Now that's way too oversimplistic for how it really works, but something like that. Uh, and at the same time, we've got these headbands where I can measure oxygen in different parts of your brain. The idea being uh, different parts of the brain break down under different conditions. And maybe we can use that to predict uh, things like acute mountain sickness or high altitude, before it gets to high altitude cerebral edema, we can say, hey, you know, you need to go back down. Or, you know, it's the night before your summit, we can get the stats of all the team and make an, an informed decision of, hey, we have enough resources to push for the summit or not. But I, brought, I, I started talking about that because not everyone has the opportunity to just take off work, right? Our airmen have to, have to go. I remember in 2015, there was an avalanche on Everest. I had a professor up at, at Camp 2 and two PJs uh, had to go in and, and air vac them out, right? There, there wasn't the option to, to not push. You know, you gotta do the mission sometimes. So what can you do about it? We can't just say, hey, don't go. You know, you you're, you're, don't have enough oxygen in your brain. So one thing we were working on was this pre-acclimatization protocol. So the normal way you're climbing a mountain is you stage, you go up to a high camp, you stash some gear, you come down to a lower camp and you sleep, and then you go to a higher, higher camp, and then you come down the next level and you sleep you know, at a lower altitude. And this is acclimatization over weeks to prepare your body for, for you know, low, low oxygen at these really high altitudes. Well, we kind of flipped it where we were sleeping in oxygen deprivation tents at night over three months leading up to our climb to try and get our bodies prepared for that low oxygen environment. So every single night we would sleep in these um, altitude tents uh, where we slowly ramped up to 20,000 20, foot equivalent of oxygen. And then every morning we were measuring our oxygen saturation. We were measuring like subjective wellness. How do you feel? We were doing some of those cognitive tests that I was telling you about. And we use that to, to figure out uh, when we could bump up to the next altitude. So 
That was kind of a proof of concept pilot study that we're writing up now to show, hey, you know, if you have time, maybe this could be one strategy to make you more resilient to those low oxygen environments. And to help visualize that, can you kind of describe what an oxygen tent looks like? Sure, I could show you a picture. Well, yeah, we'll add it on our, our social stuff. <laughs> okay, yeah. yeah, well, it's on the blogs from, from Aconcagua the first time. So the tent is just basically a tent that you sleep in. Uh, it doesn't control pressure or anything like that, so that's an important component of it. It's, it's kind of like lays over your body and is pumping in this low oxygen air. So you can kind of just picture that. But the important part is the oxygen generator, which we have to get into a lot more given the Air Force's increased interest in like our oxygen generation systems on our fighter jets. So there's this distinction where you can uh, pump in more nitrogen to re re release or to uh, decrease the oxygen. And you can also uh, sieve off the oxygen with a molecular sieve, which is how our fighter jets work. And uh, that's a, also how um, our oxygen tents work. So it would sieve off the oxygen molecules that was coming in, and we would slowly ramp up the oxygen. When our, when our blood oxygen saturation was at a safe level the next morning, we'd be like, okay, time to bump it up to the next level. You know, it's kind of like lifting weights, only you're, you're working out your brain to, to be more resilient to low oxygen is the idea. Now, that was only a small sample size, three people, but we were using that to kind of get some pilot data that, hey, this is possible, we can do this, and this needs now a well-controlled study to be able to determine the effectiveness of like, hey, you know, this is useful or this is not useful, and this works or this doesn't work. And how were you guys feeling like when you would wake up in the morning after sleeping at, so you, you would, simulate being at 10,000 or, or right. 15,000 feet mm -hmm. or something like that? It was hard. I mean, you're groggy the next morning. Sometimes you have a headache and it's not a pleasant experience. I mean, that was one of the take homes is it's kind of invasive and it's unclear where the use case for that is gonna be. I mean, maybe there's some individuals in our force who would benefit from a, who, who would be able to take part in a three month protocol. but you know, let's say you have a partner and you're sleeping in the same bed, one person's sleeping in the tent, the other's not. It's very invasive to your lifestyle. You couldn't go drinking because you wouldn't wanna be intoxicated and be in the oxygen deprivation tent. So it, it forces you to um, kind of build your life around this protocol. In the mornings, you're, you're kind of slow to get going and start. But people are using this technology. People who are climbing Everest, you know, you're putting your life on the line. You wanna do everything you can to give yourself the best opportunity to summit that mountain, or more importantly, to not die, right? Like, I'm gonna do everything I can to make sure that I'm prepared to be on that mountain, self-sufficient. And so, there's people who are sleeping in these tents, but we don't even know if they work. They might even be detrimental to performance, right? I mean, a lot of recovery goes on during sleep. Uh, we're starting to learn a lot more about sleep and the mind. If sleep, you're not, your brain's not shut off, it's not passive, right? But you're actively remembering things from the day. And how does, how does you're putting your brain in that low oxygen environment impact those things, right? If people are out there using this technology, we need to know those questions, right? Uh, for all we know, there's, some, there's airmen out there doing it as well. Right now I'm focused on the mountaineering community, but if there's benefits for this, maybe that's a strategy for, um, people exposing themselves to these low oxygen environments.
And speaking on those low environments, um, you mentioned earlier how you, well, I've been speaking on now about a lot of oxygen deprivation and doing studies on the mountain. Um, have you found different ways of stimulating the brain to help while climbing or ways to make it more efficient? So one of the things, one of the big things of that Aconcagua climb was the pre-acclimatization as a strategy to um, make you more resilient to those low, low oxygen environments. Another one that I'm working on right now in school is I think a little bit more traditional, but it's kind of using some discoveries that we're pretty confident in uh, that we've learned from neuroscience over the last two or three decades. And now we're kind of taking that and trying to apply that. So I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about the theory behind it with the goal being how do we make you more resilient in these low oxygen environments, right? Yeah. So you have these two different memory systems in your brain, okay? One is what you normally think of as memory. So that's like the instructor's up there teaching you things, going through the, the slide deck, or you're sitting there in your bedroom doing flashcards. You know, I'm a student again, so I'm, I'm very familiar with that. But what we've come to find from, from neuroscience is that there's this whole other system in your brain. Some people call it like the reptile brain. It's, it's an older part of your brain. But this is the system that you're talking about when you're, when you're saying like, I have a gut feeling we shouldn't go down that alley. Like these are your intuitions. This is the non-conscious part of your brain. And this, this um, part of your brain picks up on like statistical regularities in the environment and things like that. And oh, by the way, it's resilient to things like stress, like heat stress or, um, cold stress, things like that. Uh, no one's looked at it in terms of oxygen deprivation yet. Uh, that's kind of what I'm working on right now with Northwestern and the Air Force Research Laboratory to understand how these different memory systems are vulnerable or potentially resilient in these environments. And so what we're doing with the Navy on top of that is developing an app to help encode information into that non-conscious, potentially oxygen resilient part of the brain, if that makes sense, if you're following me so far. Almost like trying to enhance that part of your brain then? I'm trying to get information into that part of the brain okay. so that we can capitalize on the, the characteristics that that brain system has, right? So it's got a large capacity, for example. So our conscious brain system has a very narrow capacity. You can, you can only keep a couple things in mind at once, right? This other part of the brain, it's almost limitless, I don't know, we don't know uh, what are the limits of that uh, non-conscious part of the brain. And so this, but this dual process theory is the framework that I work under, that, that, we, that we work under to develop some technology. So let's take that, that theory that we're really confident in that we got from neuroscience, but so what, how do we apply it? So one of the things we're doing with the Navy is um, trying to help people learn to read topographic maps. A lot of people are having trouble uh, with land navigation, people don't read maps anymore growing up, you have your GPS. And so what we're working on is an app that can potentially go in between, you know, you get your, your instruction from the professor, and then you go out in the field and you're orienteering, and practice is where that, those intuitions develop, right? That's where that non-conscious part of the brain is developing, is from sets and reps, doing it over and over and over. And so we're trying to accelerate that with an app, where we can rapidly encode that topographic map information and the way that we present that allows that information to be encoded into the non-conscious part of the brain, right? So you're looking at having this almost as, uh, almost instinct, where you get out there and it's supposed to be pulled up a lot faster. Yeah. Like, oh yeah, I've oriented myself with this environment. Automatic. Yep. Automatic, okay. Yep, automatic processing. So we're trying to 
engage that implicit automatic processing system for things like topographic map reading so that when you find yourself in a highly stressful situation like the summit of a mountain, you know, you have that split second to, uh, you know, kind of rely on your training, rely on that non-conscious part of your brain, rely on your intuitions to hopefully, you know, get you out of a bad situation. And you mentioned that's something you've been digging into, you said relatively recently, like, or has this been a major part of your studies? So the, um, the in-lab component of what I was just describing it, uh, in terms of how these different memory systems, these different brain systems are um, affected by hypoxia, mm -hmm. that's a new study. So we just got funding for that in a collaboration between Northwestern and the Air Force to develop these cognitive tests that I've been talking about. So rapidly assess your cognition. Let's get a snapshot of where's your mind at right now? How are you doing? And then we're putting people in a brain scanner, a functional magnetic resonance imaging system, which measures oxygen in the blood in a really precise way. It's a big bulky machine, so we have to have it in the lab, but it gives us really precise understanding of where's the oxygen going in your brain and how is that associated with these cognitive systems and how are these different systems affected by things like hypoxia. Yeah, yeah, and if you can speak to it kind of at a higher level, um, what are some of the more interesting things you found where oxygen flows in the brain? Has anything surprised you or is it kind of matching research we've already done? The part of where's oxygen in the brain and what does it supplied me with? I think I've, I would talk mostly about trying to think of ways that we can use that information. So I don't think that I'm necessarily discovering new places where oxygen is going in the brain yet, or I'm not going to be able to make some claims about this system versus that system in terms of its effects on oxygen, right? Because we still have to do that research. Yeah. But where I'm at now is trying to get ahead of it and say, so what? So we can measure oxygen in the brain, how can we use that? I'm, don't get me wrong, I'm very much interested in basic research, we call that 6-1 research here. I love that knowledge for knowledge's sake, but it's also important to me to get that out into the lab, right? And so I'm working on this headset called Functional Near-Infrared Spectroscopy, excuse me, FNIRS. It does a really similar thing on a surface level as the fMRI where it's measuring oxygenated blood in the brain, but it's limited because it, it uses light. So it's a small system, so I can take it up a mountain, but it's not as precise as the fMRI. You only get access to certain brain regions. And so it's kind of trying to understand these different technologies and the settings that we could use these different technologies. And so where I'm picturing this FNIR system is you're going up the mountain. I think I was saying a little bit about it earlier. You're going up the mountain and you get to your medical checks. You know, right now what they do is they just ask you, hey, how you feeling? Oh, uh, you know, I got a headache. Uh, and then they put a pulse oximeter on your finger, you know, and that's as good as it gets. Well. Maybe we could take it a step further and we can use these cognitive assessments while we're measuring the oxygen flow in your brain. How hard is these, are these different brain regions having to work um, during these tests? And maybe we can improve these medical checks to, pre to predict things like, hey, you know, this isn't just a headache. Based on this data, you're on, the, you're on the course to developing acute mountain sickness. You need to go down the mountain or you're gonna start to have problems. And so that's one application where I'm trying to get to is improving these medical checks 
using these like kind of functional um, neuroscience tools. And is this, so when you actually went up with this headset um, up Aconagua, did you actually have medical professionals that you met up with and said, hey, like, would you test this device or use it with them or just your team using this device? So for Aconcagua, I did not have the headset yet. I was mostly um, looking at different wearables like I'm wearing now. So these watches measure things like heart rate. This one measures oxygen in the blood too, pulse okay. ox, kind of like what I was talking about with the finger. But um, over the summer, I went up Long's Peak, which is a 14,000 foot mountain in Colorado, and I took up the headset. And yeah, and I was asking the rangers, hey, you know, um, where do you, and, and fellow climbers, where would this technology help you? And they were, they, were, they were with me. They're saying, you know, hey, if you can figure out, you know, is someone just have a headache or could this develop into something pathological, that's really valuable because, you know, if you're you're up there at 20,000 feet and you develop high altitude cerebral edema, that's life threatening, right? So can we can we predict when that's going to happen based on patterns in your cognitive performance in your brain? And can we prevent uh, mishaps attributed to things like acute mountain sickness, high altitude cerebral edema? That's great. It shows clearly there's a need for this and people are responding to it well. So yeah. And your plan is to further research with this headset then? Or Definitely. these kind of devices on, yeah. you said you had an next mountain you're looking to summit or is that still? Yeah, I get, we're going to go down, we're going to get the band back together and we're going to go down to Aconcagua down in South America Very nice. and uh, yeah, return and try and summit this time. So definitely going to tie it into research again. We'll see where it goes. I'm not sure what technology, where the technology is going to be at by that point, but it'll surely be, you know, along the lines of what we've been talking about. Absolutely. I think I'm always looking for like better pieces of tech that are less cumbersome, um, less wires, better battery life, right? And because because that's the most important thing that I learned from two years ago on Aconcagua is you can plan for all these things, but everything's going to go wrong, and so. You need your tech, this technology, we need to be able to open it up and use it and it works right away. And so it's kind of trying to cut out all the fat, you know, what, are, what, 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 what is actually working versus what are companies claiming is working uh, and actually put it to the test on these mountains is the goal. And what all did you learn on your actual summit? We, we, missed, we missed part of the story. So you got on the mountain, you were doing these cognitive tests. Yeah. I mean, you're sleeping in a tent. Sure. Most of the time, or? Yeah, so um, so we get to base camp, things are going good, and uh, doing some cognitive testing, and then we get up to the to the next camp up, I think at that, so base camp on Aconcagua is like, I don't know, 14,000, around there, 14,000 feet. We get up to the next camp, Kenyatta, and it's like 16,000 feet, and the wind is just whipping, it's crazy. It's just like, you know, your tent's just looking like it's gonna collapse. I'm, and everyone's just kind of like bracing their tent over the night, you know, like you're using your backpack to give it like extra insulation. You're putting rocks around your tent to break the wind or whatever. It's extreme. So we wake up the next day and we take a cache hike. So where we're going up to the next camp to do that staging, stash some gear, sleep at a lower altitude to recover. Um, so we go up and we stash our, can our, our gear at Nito and I come back down and my tent is just ripped open. Oh, <laughs> just like, what am I gonna do? I'm on the side of a mountain and my tent's ripped open. So I ended up sleeping with this French dude uh, for, the, for, the, for the rest of the climb. So that was like step one. Then we get up to Camp Nido and at Nido, there's no running water. So you're having to melt snow uh, and ice for your water 
well, of course my stove breaks. So oh, now, you know, relying yeah. on the Frenchman again to, to help me like boil down my water, you know, and we're in it, you know, we, him and I, we met like kind of early on at the, uh, this um, mutual trip organizer place where we did some organizing. And uh, so we were kind of like in it together or whatever. And then we get up to the high camp, Calera, which is, about 20,000 feet, if I recall right, 19,000, oh, wow. 20,000 feet. Yeah, and you're feeling it. You're feeling it by then. You know, you're just drained. It's fatigue. You've been on the mountain for a long time. You've been climbing every single day and hauling all your gear. But we got a weather window. So then the next day, so we're so we're we're we gotta we gotta get up there. So we're up there, and and I'm I'm feeling okay. Like I'm ready to go for the summit. But we wake up on summit day. We woke up at like four in the morning, and. Uh, it's just a whiteout. So this mountain's known for it. Um, it's called Viento Blanco, as a lot of the, they refer to this on the mountain, the white wind. So it's just known for this incredibly strong wind that ripped open my tent. And now it's like blizzarding out. And so we're like, yeah, we're not gonna, you know, there's a dangerous section on this climb where you have to put on crampons, which are like the spiky shoes. So you have grip or else you're gonna fall, you know, if you fall, you're gonna fall 4,000 feet. It's a fast way down, but it's not the way down you want. And so, no. <laughs> we, so, so we so we so we wake up 4 a.m. blizzard out. It's like okay, we'll push it back. 6 a.m. same conditions, and the weather report says it's supposed to get better early afternoon. You know, 8 a.m. still the same. And as a team, we're getting together. Like, hey, what do we do? You know, the weather report says that it should be getting good in the next couple hours. But you look outside your tent. It's not looking good. I'm not going to climb in that. You know, I'm not going to cramp on a across an ice sheet where I can fall 4,000 feet. You know, in a in a whiteout. But what do you do? Do you do you start pushing up, w trusting the weather forecast that it's going to get better, or do you do you do you not? And so there were some more experienced climbers on my team, and they um, said that we should go down. And so that's what we did. And it was really hard. I mean, it was really hard to go down. You put in all this effort. To, to get up to that point, but that's where, you know, the research comes in, which is, do you trust your instincts? You trust those intuitions like, hey, something's off here. Like, yeah, I know that the forecast told me that it's okay, that it's gonna be okay in a couple hours, but something feels not right, you know? So when do you trust those instincts and those intuitions, especially in the low oxygen environment? How does that impact that, you know? The important thing though is the whole team returns safely and we got some good pilot pilot data that we got the data that we wanted to with the cognitive assessments uh being able to like run these tests at the different camps and we're gonna go back there this year and, and have another go at the mountain so did you find at the top like when you actually at let's say um one of the higher camps that you were actually acclimating pretty well when you use like let's say the wearable you have now like you actually were your body was adapting so in terms of like, you mean like the research that we were doing, was it working? Yeah, I was gonna see like kind of what you pulled from that research, I suppose. Yeah, like okay. Getting higher up the mountain. Yeah, so I think um, I'm not willing to make any claims about the effectiveness of the altitude tent itself. Like I said, that needs to be a well-controlled, larger sample size. Yeah. But what we did do was show the proof of concept. We showed that it can be done, and if you were gonna do it, this is how you should do it. Okay. And for the cognitive tests, we, again, the sample size is really strong. So as a scientist, you hesitate to really make any claims. And so I think I, I usually bill it as hardware testing, software testing, show that the equipment that we're using can work. 
better understanding of how the battery life, you know, and, and the cold is gonna affect things like your tablets. That's valuable information. And the test that we were looking at worked as well. I mean, if you want, if you were, if you were to push me, we saw a lot more variability in reaction time um, at the higher camps than the lower camps. Um, but again, you need to do well-controlled studies to be able to confidently, you know, make claims about the effectiveness of, of these strategies and technologies that I'm talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So kind of going back into your training, what brought you here? Um, we heard that you're a smart scholar. Yeah, two time, two, two time smart oh, wow. scholar. Do you have like two trophies in? <laughs> you deserve them, I mean. Uh, can you kind of walk degrees. through what that's like then, being a smart scholar yeah. twice? Yeah, it's um, been an incredible ride. I've been super fortunate that the Air Force has just invested in my education. It's something we do really, really well. We do training really well. And, um, you know, I got out of my undergrad and uh, needed a job. And so I started working on this study as a contractor for the Air Force. We were doing a, a job for the CIA trying to measure chemicals in the blood to figure out are you trustworthy or not. We could talk about that That's really if you cool. want. It was cool. <laughs> I guess they liked the work that I did. So, and, and I, I let them know that I really wanted to go to graduate school. And I guess they liked the work that I did. So they sponsored, they, they told me to apply for the SMART scholarship. And I didn't know what it was. And I looked into it and it's like, they give you a stipend. They, you're allowed to go to whatever school that you want. So you can go to a world-class institution that's got your niche, right? I mean, I don't have to be um, wedded to going to something like AFIT, where AFIT does a lot of things really well, but for neuroscience, I wanted to go to the best of the business, right? So they'll give you a great uh, uh, stipend, you can go off to school, and oh, by the way, once you graduate, they give you a job. So, so I went off to George Mason University for a master's degree, uh, doing a lot of cognitive and behavioral neuroscience, a lot of uh, applied work. I did a lot of genetics work where I actually just got this patent where we were identifying genes that predict things like your memory. And uh, the patent was, how can we use that? One of the, the ideas is you can personalize nutritional supplements based on this genetic discovery that I made with memory. So depending on which gene you have, we can design a nutritional supplement with more or less folate, it's a vitamin, and that is then associated with, with memory. And so that was kind of some of the work I was doing at George Mason University through the SMART program. And what was cool about it is they had a center of excellence there, which is a large grants partnership that the Air Force has with universities where the professors at, uh, and the researchers at both institutions are collaborating. And there's flow of students back and forth between the institutions. And I was like dead center in this, this large scale collaboration right in my field of interest between these two institutions. And what is so awesome about that is that allowed me to seamlessly transition the genetics work that I was doing at George Mason in-house here at AFRL. And so I got this chief scientist seat. So, so I matriculated to AFRL. Now I'm a civil servant, right? Got my master's degree. Now I'm a civil servant. But that work that I was doing in school, I just brought that over to here, right? And I got this chief scientist seedling to start to use your genetics to um, personalize oxygen efficiency training, right? And that's where we start to get close to the, closer to the mountain climbing stuff. I, you see where I'm going with it. And so I was doing work here for two or three years, working on this genetic stuff, genetics of oxygen efficiency training, certain training plans might be better for different individuals and maybe we can use genetics to figure out what, how can I make you the best that you can be? But 
I quickly realized that you need a PhD to do the things that I wanna do in the field. I wanna ask my own questions. You know, I, I, I want to take my research in certain directions, and in order to do that, you need to have a PhD. It's like your driver's license in the field. And I think it's a little bit of a shame. I know there's a lot of you know, stupid PhDs out there and a lot of brilliant GEDs, but, but that's the way the world works. So I could have had a, a good career here with a master's degree and gone up the management track, but I was really interested in the technical track here. I, I look at the jobs of like the chief scientists and maybe one day that's kind of where I would want to go if, my, if, I, if I was going to like move up like that. Right now I really like bench, bench level science, so that's what I'm going to keep doing. And I loved school. I mean, I think that if you enjoy school and someone's going to pay you to go to school, I was like, it's a win-win. Oh yeah, it's a great yeah. opportunity. And it wasn't your, you'll go on to your story where you get your second you yeah. know, Smart Scholar trophy, as we said, but I mean, <laughs> they're paying you a regular salary. It's not, right. not like what we normally would think of like getting your stipend from school, which right. is just kind of get you by. Well, so first part on the stipend, because I love plugging Smart, is um, when you're a recruitment scholar, which is you're not in the civil service yet, but we're trying to recruit, you're already getting a better stipend than you're gonna get at any academic institution, period, okay? The Department of Defense will give you more money for school than you will get anywhere else. That's something we do better than anyone else, I believe. But the second time that I got that the SMART scholarship, there's this other side of the SMART scholarship that people don't know about too much, which is a retention scholar. And so what that is is, the Air Force's attempt to retain top talent, right? You, we, like I said, we do training really, really well. Once we get people in the door, we grow them. You know, you empower them and you grow them. And so, I made it known that hey, I want to continue my education. You know, I want to improve my skill set in neuroscience, and that's aligned with where the Air Force was going with their work. So they sponsored my Smart Scholarship the second time. It's different though because I'm in school, but I keep my government salary, keep my time towards retirement keep my connections between both institutions, and yeah, again, I'm at a center of excellence too. So I've got to, under that umbrella of this large grants partnership, I'm now enabled to pursue my interests in this um, low oxygen cognition and low oxygen neuroscience field, right? So it all kind of plays together that has allowed me to really explore my own line of research and uh, I'm in my second year of five years of that award, so it's a lot of this is kind of new. But I'm building this kind of this kind of technology and this this uh, line of research that we've been talking about today, with the idea that then I'll take that and matriculate that back to the Air Force. I mean, I think I can think of one or two applications that we could, you know, that that would be meaningful in low oxygen environments for the Air Force, whether that's you know pulling off climbers off Mount Everest when there's an avalanche or experiencing a low oxygen situation in a cockpit. I think that the skill set and the knowledge that I'm gaining through this SMART program, through the Center of Excellence, is gonna be an asset back here. So Kevin, we step beyond the, the pilots and the athletes. What about the everyday person? Is there applications in your research that you see in the future or, or that are currently here? So actually this FNIR system that, that I've been talking about that we've been using for climbing and maybe pilot and testing it for, for use in Air Force applications, it's actually mainstream right now 
um, in, for, for infants that are in the hospital, a, a way that we can monitor cerebral oxygenation in babies is really where the FNIRs are being employed um, currently. You can't put these babies in through, through some of these like big you know, fMRI machines that are clunky and really loud, that, that's dangerous. So instead, if we can use this headset to non-invasively monitor the health of these preterm infants and, 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 and babies, uh, that's where that technology is currently being used. And we are taking it to warfighter applications, but it's really this kind of feedback between the commercial sector and the, the, the healthcare sector where they're using it in the hospital for different applications that they have. Uh, and, and us in the Air Force are using it for applications that we have. And so it's really a cross flow of this technology between these different um, sectors. And you mentioned before like this, is almost, a, especially with you climbing on mountains doing this research, a pretty unique position. Um, what is that like almost building a position for yourself here in the Air Force? Uh, it's stressful. <laughs> <laughs> but it sounds rewarding though in the end. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. I thought, I thought that tying in my personal interests with climbing with my professional interests in the brain was gonna mean that, you know, I'll never be working because, you know, I'm doing what I love. Well, that's true, but at the same time, you're kind of always working because you're doing what you love also. And so I think I need to um, take a step back and realize like how awesome that opportunity is. And I, I can be a little self-critical about, you know, maybe things should be developing better or whatever, but it's incredibly rewarding when it works, you know, like my, I've, I've learned a lot of computer programming and like there's been so many nights at school where I'm just pulling out my hair because my code's not running or whatever. <laughs> and then it works. And then like all of a sudden it works. And it's just like the most rewarding thing when you, you, you build something and, it, and, and it's working. And, and I think the true test though is when you can transition it out of the lab. And so that's been a really strong push of mine is to take the traditional way, you know, continue the traditional way we've been doing tightly controlled, hypothesis-driven research in the laboratory, you know, using these precise big bulky machines. I'm gonna, I'm gonna continue that and keep that laboratory component. But as a compliment, I really like building this like mountain laboratory because it allows me to really understand the tools that would be useful to an airman out in the field, right? I, um, and, and that's just, you don't experience those environments in the laboratory. You cannot recreate those stresses. Yeah. Even at the, what is it? We have the, I'm gonna butcher it, the Armstrong Environmental Oh, like um, the the hangar where they can make it snow sort of right. sort of area is yeah. that one down in Eglin? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have a this basically a climate cha yeah. chamber that you can blow wind or snow yeah, or make rain, it freezing or something, and test all these something things. like that. Yeah. So maybe they'll text me and say I'm wrong, but <laughs> they cannot recreate that environment that I was experiencing on the summit, uh, you know, at the, at the high camp of yeah. Aconcagua. You know, the only test for that, you know, when you're completely fatigued, sleep deprived, you know, freezing cold, melting ice for your water. You're still trying to get out your equipment and just opening, so on Long's Peak it, the other week, just opening up my laptop and putting on the oxygen headset was hard. I didn't want to do it. You know, you're super tired. You just make it to the summit, you know. So you quickly realize that these technologies that we're developing, if they're going to be useful, if they're going to be used, 
if they're gonna be used and adopted by the warfighters, it needs to be kind of seamless. It needs to open up and go. You need to be able to slap it on the individual and it works the first time. And so that's kind of where I wanna to get to with, with my research. Because if it, if it doesn't work, I mean, you've just taken away time and energy in, in a stressful environment or yeah. life-threatening environment. Exactly, they'll throw it to the side. I would too. I mean, I, how many times have you seen people, I remember I was, I was whitewater rafting in uh, West Virginia. They have these water release dates where you get this like massive string of these class five rapids on the upper gully river. Okay, whatever, side story. But <laughs> I was there with one of my buddies and he's really into tech and stuff. But like, I remember we're like going down these like amazing world-class rapids and he's like sitting there fussing with his GoPro. Like, oh, is it on? I don't know. Like, you know, like, you, that is not, you can't have that. Like click the button and it's on and leave it alone. Sitting there messing with all these gadgets and then it doesn't work you're or like out. it turns it. Yeah, you're missing out. But I mean, that's for us when we're having fun. But if you're out there in the field, you can potentially miss something catastrophic to your team. If you're sitting there fussing with the technology to get it to work, that's not gonna, people aren't gonna use that. You're gonna throw it aside and it's gonna sit there on the shelf. You know, it's gotta be non-invasive and it's gotta, seamlessly integrate with you know with the team and 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 their current operations so um something else we wanted to touch on we've talked a lot about how you can use like um going with your research for oxygen deprivation and this uh the headset you're talking about at altitude but what about at sea level a lot of athletes are very interested in the oxygen deprivation work as well some other ongoing work at uh, northwestern this is very um preliminary research, but it looks like acute oxygen deprivation, so very fast oscillations of like 30 seconds or one minute of low oxygen, hyperoxygen, too much oxygen, you know, these rapid oscillations tend to have this learning enhancement effect. Like what's up with that? Who knows? But uh, they're using this kind of like fast oscillating hypoxia to um, help stroke uh, victims recover. but. That's like very early stage research. Uh, like I kind of said, people are already sleeping in these oxygen deprivation tents over longer periods to increase their physical performance. And um, so athletes are using that for, maybe they're gonna go play a game at, at Denver. They need to understand how their body's gonna react. But a big thing uh, in the athletics community is, it's pretty well known that when you train at altitude and you come back down to sea level, you feel like Superman. You know, you're just, you're, you're, you're your blood is able to carry so much more oxygen around your body that you can just go for much longer. And so if you can sleep in this tent and get that same effect while continuing at sea level, then that might give you the edge. And I know there's a lot of people in the medical community using oxygen deprivation for different things like asthma and stuff, but I can't really comment on that too much. Okay, so it's kind of going along the lines of how could we train athletes specifically, or even with airmen, we could say like ways you could train to get yourself, like you mentioned, ready for these higher climates, or in reverse, training these higher climates to perform better at sea level. Right. That's fascinating. Yeah. So that's something, is that gonna, your research is gonna tie, is tying into that currently you mentioned, or is this something that other fields are working on that? For the oxygen training? deprivation training? Yeah, like at sea level. Yeah, so 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 our team is, is working on is still working on that. So we're writing up kind of the work that we've already done and then we're gonna kind of move on to the next stage, which is potentially doing the well-controlled study. But there's other technologies within that that we are working on too, which is 
let's say that I'm successful in building this predictive model where I'm measuring your attention and your working memory and your implicit memory. And then we've got the headset and the headset's working and it's measuring oxygen in these different parts of the brain. And we can predict things like hypoxia. Well, maybe that technology can be adopted by the commercial sector too. Everyone's seen on the news Everest season this year where you've got these long lines. It is just crazy to me. Long lines of people, uh, you know, on this mountain uh, and they're dying. They're, you're dying because you're running out of oxygen and your body's not acclimatized because you've been breathing this, this you know, norm, normoxia, normal levels of oxygen the whole time. And then when it runs out, you're screwed. So maybe the pre-acclimatization can help there. But also the goal is in real time, are there different sensors that the climbers can be wearing um, or sensors in the mask, right? This translates really well to, to the cockpit as well. Yeah. To understand the physiological status of the individual and be able to predict things. Uh, maybe that can be used to predict all these deaths that are happening on Mount Everest, for, you know? Um, but it's just kind of crazy to me that that's even happening. I mean, you see the pictures of Mount Everest and it kind of looks disgusting, you know? It's mind-boggling to see how, a lot of people see Everest as, you know, like that is the end all be all, the biggest mountain to climb, but a lot of people are doing it now because it's more accessible. Yeah. To some they think, but yeah. just, you're picturing that image of just people waiting. Yeah. Or, and, and then the the garbage, debris, bodies. Yeah. Like there's so much yeah. left on the mountain. It's not this pristine yeah. uh, kind of thing that you would picture as the you know most remote part of the world sort of thing. Yeah, I don't and 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 what do you do about it? I think a lot of people try to hate on the Nepalese government, like they shouldn't issue as many climbing permits, but like that's how they make money. That's how these communities make money. And so I think it's up to us as, maybe the word isn't tourists, but as outsiders coming in to make sure that we're taking care of those communities, taking care of the mountain um, so that lasts longer. But uh, my, my ambitions for Everest or my wants for climbing Everest are, are quickly diminishing that I just don't think that that's a, where that where that you know that commercial space is going on that mountain, I don't think is something that I necessarily want to be a part of. But that said, I really want to get to the Himalayas soon. I mean, it's just so beautiful. Is that the next? So we talked about kind of your uh, next research trip. So is that your next like pleasure trip for climbing? Then like one just for you and a team of friends or a team of experts to go up? I'm not sure. There's a lot of really good mountains stateside. You know, in the Cascades in the Pacific Northwest and Colorado. I think right now I'm really focused on training and getting a uh, training the technical aspects of these high altitude climbs yeah. and just nailing that down, right? Getting that information encoded into the automatic part of my brain. So be easier next So time, that yeah. I can just whip out my laptop and my headset and it works seamlessly, right? So that's kind of what I'm doing now. Um, is kind of when I when I get a, get break from from school or something. I've every chance I get, I'm getting out to these mountains and um, trying to develop self-sufficient skills that will allow me to climb these harder mountains. I mean, I would love to climb Denali in Alaska, but I'm nowhere close to the uh, skill level that I need to be to be on that mountain. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people, like on Everest, want to just pay someone to take them up the mountain. And you know, if you're rich, maybe you can do that. But for me, 
I'm not gonna be on that mountain unless I'm self-sufficient, unless I can take care of myself. If the situation goes bad, I'm not relying on a guide. I mean, I'm gonna have a guide. I'm not relying on the guide, you know, solely. Or if my oxygen system runs out on the mountain, you know, I'm gonna be in the best like possible place to be able to like manage that situation. A lot of people climb without oxygen just for that that reason is like, yeah, that's fine until something goes wrong, until your oxygen system goes down. And then you're out of luck. You know, yeah. they're not out of luck. They just didn't put themselves in a place for success. They're completely relying on other people to take care of them up that these mountains. And that's just not the way I climb. Yeah. And like you said, that's where it would come in with a lot of these guides to have your device, for instance, to say, that's hey, right. it ran out. I can see you're having an issue. We're heading back. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us, Kevin. Yeah, thank, thank you, so you guys. Much. Thanks. Appreciate it. And to keep up to date with future and past podcasts and to check us out on social media, make sure to see us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and YouTube at AF Research Lab. And make sure to stay curious. Logging off.